Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, manufacturer of food. Food, (laughs) you know, it comes in a blue and white container, mostly white, with blue lettering and a blue stripe. It can also be found in a box or a can. Buy food everywhere you buy food. (laughs) That's a great, great little advertisement there. And what what is food? That is a question we may answer in this episode of our season on the films of 1984, because we're talking about our future cult classic pick, Repo Man, which features food. Uh, and that's literal. It's a can that's labeled food that uh, has food in it. Apparently, and drink of some sort. <laughs> drink. Yes. Food and drink, as well as uh, as other uh, generically Beer. labeled items. Right. Right. But what is drink? Because there's beer that has beer. So drink doesn't have beer, but is, it appears yeah. to be some sort of alcohol. Anyway, we'll I get mean, into that. I think that's in this world, there's beer and there's drink. That's it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Those you're not, if you're not drinking beer, you're drinking drink. drink. Right. That's fair. <laughs> so Repo Man. Yeah, this is our future cult classic pick. And I, I think a lot of the cult, Classic movies that we've talked about in our various seasons are movies that were big failures and that kind of went on to generate a cult following. This movie was somewhat successful, even though it was not really supported by the studio. And uh, watching it, you can understand why studio executives might think, uh, what? But (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they they did try to make it fail. You know, Um, it was universal. And um, you know, it was greenlit, and then the management at Universal changed, and then the new management was like, nah, we're only going to release you in one theater in Chicago. And then that did well, and they're like, all right, fine, we'll release you in a theater in L.A. And then that did well, and then it ended up playing for 18 months at one theater in New York. So against uh, the studio's wishes, they had to make money on this movie by letting it continue to play. Very, very disappointing. But uh, this is a very weird movie, so you can see why studio executives might not want to take a risk on it. And But of course, once it starts making money, then it's not a risk anymore and you can put it out more. It ultimately grossed $3.7 million on its budget of $1.5 million. So that's not like a huge profit or anything. But you know, for a movie that is this odd, the fact that it could have any kind of success is, I think, kind of impressive. And also the fact that it wasn't released, you know? (laughs) Eventually it was. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Yes, uh, yeah. yeah. It was like, in in spite of their best efforts, this film managed to make money despite the studio's best efforts to tank it. Right, right. Although you have to wonder, a movie like this, if they instead had decided, okay, uh, we're all in on this movie and we're going to release it in a wide national release right away, that it would have bombed because it's not a mainstream film. It's not the kind of thing that big audiences are going to go see. And we've talked about how all these crowd-pleasing blockbusters in 1984 and Repo Man does not fit 
with uh, any of those movies. Sure, but it was very well reviewed. And also, I mean, let's be a little creative. Run it as a midnight movie. Run it as an event type thing. You know, there's there's plenty of ways around it um, that I think they could have marketed it. Like you said, hey, man, it almost made, you know, it made double its budget back. So, you know, we're not trying to compete with Gremlins and Ghostbusters here. Right. No, we're not. And I think that that word of mouth marketing where it would have come out in one theater and everyone who went to see it probably thought, what the hell? I got to tell everyone about this. Helped it build up that audience. And it's continued, of course, to build that cult following over time. Um, However many people saw it in theaters, I'm sure far more people eventually saw it on home video. And it is very much a midnight movie kind of thing. I'm sure this was a movie that was shown in college towns and places like that at midnight showings over the course of the next 10, 15 plus years and reached an audience for it's a very weird story about repo men and aliens, I guess, maybe starring Emilio Estevez as the punk rocker turned repo man and Harry Dean Stanton as his mentor. I suppose, if we can categorize, characterize it that way. Yeah, um, and Josh, uh, earlier this year, obviously, uh, this season, we talked about Harry Dean Stanton as a drifter in uh, Paris, Texas. This character, Harry Dean Stanton, Bud, could have been hired to track that character down and bring him back, uh, much like a bail bondsman or a repo man might do. Yeah, I feel like both of those Harry Dean Stanton characters could exist in the same universe. <laughs> they feel like they have that connection, even though these are very different movies. We've talked about the Saturn Awards, the uh, genre awards a few times. That's really the only major award that this movie ended up with. Uh, it did get a Best Supporting Actor Award at the Saturn Awards for Tracy Walter, who plays the even weirder guy who kind of hangs around the repo yard. I don't know what his actual job is. It involves burning stuff a lot. Yeah. Uh, burning and cleaning. He's a get, he's a getter ridder of her. Mm. Sure. Sure. And also a, a <laughs> philosophizer. He uh, yeah. has some interesting ideas about life, but uh, Tracy Walter won best supporting actor. And the movie was also nominated for best writing for uh, Alex Cox, who is the writer and director of this film. And uh, that's all we got in terms of awards. Well, it did win Best Screenplay from the Boston Society of Film Critics. There you go. That's an even smaller uh, organization. But uh, not surprising that film critics would have given it an award. It was generally well-reviewed by critics, even at the time. And again, a lot of these cult movies are dismissed not only at the box office, but also by critics until later on. But critics were into this one from the start. Roger Ebert said, all of this works very nicely. But what's best about Repo Man is its sly sense of humor. There are a lot of running gags in the movie, and the best of them involves generic food labels, of all things. The movie also has a special way of looking at Los Angeles, seeing it through Harry Dean Stanton's eyes as a wasteland of human ambitions where a few bucks can be made by the quick, the bitter, and the sly. I saw Repo Man near the end of a busy stretch on the movie beat three days during which I saw more relentlessly bad movies than during any comparable period in memory. Most of those bad movies were so cynically constructed out of formula ideas and, quote, commercial ingredients that watching them was an ordeal. Repo Man comes out of left field, has no big stars, didn't cost much, takes chances, dares to be unconventional, is funny, and works. There is a lesson here. So, and I'd, I'd love to know what movies exactly... Roger Ebert was watching 
uh, up to this point that made Repo Man feel refreshing, but he doesn't. Yeah, I, I was I was thinking the same thing, and also just like him calling like Siskel and being like, "Oh, I'm on another hard beat. I got <laughs> I got to watch all these. I got to sit in the theater and get paid to watch these movies and write about them." Oh, oh, they're giving me more free popcorn. This is tough. Siskel was probably sitting right there next to him the whole time, though. Also, uh, zero attempt of an Ebert impression there. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I appreciate that, actually, that you didn't, you didn't attempt the Ebert impression. Uh, Vincent Canby in the New York Times said, It's a sneakily rude, truly zany farce that treats its lunatic characters with a solemnity that perfectly matches the way in which they see themselves. It's a neo-surreal Southern California fable set in a landscape inhabited by failed punk rockers, automobile repossession men who behave as if they were the knights errant of capitalism, some creatures from outer space, as well as a television evangelist who preaches against godless communism abroad and liberal humanism at home. At its end, there's nothing less than an ascension to heaven in a 1964 Chevy Malibu. Repo Man frequently seems to be as zonked as Mr. Stanton's cocaine-sniffing bud. It's not a big-budget Ghostbusters of a movie, but it's very entertaining. And though it's rude in an R-rated way, it has the good taste never to promise more than it can deliver. So I, uh, He was mentioning the anti-communist thing. One of my favorite lines in there is when Bud says, I don't want no commies in my car. No Christians, neither. <laughs> yeah, Bud, Bud has very specific standards. Also, I believe Bud sniffs uh, speed and not cocaine. So I think uh, Vincent Canby has that wrong. You're right on the detail, but do you really think he's not, you know, <laughs> snorting the coke on his uh, spare time? No, that's fair. He says that he takes speed, but uh, presumably I think it's a fair uh, guess that he also takes coke. So that's that's reasonable. <laughs> And uh, I did appreciate he he compares this to Ghostbusters, which, of course, we just talked about in our last episode. And uh, this is definitely not Ghostbusters, although <laughs> I, I, I feel like in a weird way, I could imagine Bill Murray as the Harry Dean Stanton character in this movie. Or maybe a uh, maybe a Ray cameo saying, you know, is Zool in the back of your trunk or something like that? <laughs> Maybe. But I, I just I feel like Bill Murray has been in these kinds of weird movies. And this is the kind of thing that he would potentially gravitate towards. Um, but I suppose we'll never know. Finally, uh, Pauline Kale in The New Yorker said, L.A. is the perfect setting for a movie about men who take out their frustrations by confiscating other people's cars. There's a definite element of realism tucked into this low-budget nihilistic fantasy. It's a woozy comedy for people who will appreciate the idea of the mean, gaunt Stantons being called Bud and of his being anybody's mentor, or even just the idea of Harry Dean Stanton. The movie gives you the feeling that you've gone past alienation into the land of detachment. It takes place in a different dimension, a punker's wasteland, where you never really know where you are and nobody cares to make things work and everybody you see is part of the lunatic fringe. A movie like this with nothing positive in it can make you feel good. That's a weird wow. observation, but I can Yeah, of... I think it's kind of fair, that nihilistic view. And I do think one of the uh, real, real uh, winning elements of this film is 
just what a tone and uh, world they set here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very much immersive in the in this world, and I mean, it, it seems weird at first for her for Pauline Kael to say that there's some realism here, but I do think it gets that that gritty uh, side of Los Angeles, um, the, the rundown storefronts and the homeless people, and uh, you know, the the world that the punk rockers and the Repo Men inhabit, even if they're sort of at odds with each other. They're all on that that fringe. And so I appreciated that. And weirdly, this movie makes Los Angeles feel like a small town and that all of the characters in this movie are constantly randomly running into each other, coincidentally, as if nobody else lives there. It seems like that's it, right? They all they all live and work in the same neighborhood. And we're just focused on that because, you know, L.A. is basically this suburb, that suburb. So we're just focused on Echo Park or whatever it is here that that does have that feel. Yeah, I don't know where exactly uh, what region this uh, takes place in or if if it does in any particular actual area. It does have a the opening credits show you the well, Los uh, Alamos, map. right? Oh, yeah. Well, that would be New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's more about yeah. where the, the, the aliens, car with, yeah. the car with the aliens is driving from uh, from New Mexico across the desert and ending up in Los Angeles. But uh, yeah, weirdly, like a sense of place and yet also a sense of sort of being in no place. So uh which works for the surreal tone of the movie. It feels real and not real at the same time. I agree. I agree. It does work for this film, Josh. All right. So um, is this a movie you'd ever seen before, Jason? Never saw this one. Okay. You never uh, you got a midnight show or anything like that? I've been to midnight shows, but not for Repo Man. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I, I saw this movie some number of years ago, but not in, in that kind of, culty context that it would be cool to see. And, you know, this is, we've talked about this a lot with these cult movies where I'm sure seeing it in a theater with people who are really into it would be a lot of fun. And I just watched it at home at one time because I knew it was a cult movie and it was uh, a critical favorite and I wanted to check it out. And I think at the time I was a little underwhelmed and, and I still like, it's a, it's a fun, weird movie. I, I still don't feel the, like the level of enthusiasm for it that, that a lot of uh, critics and, and the, the sort of cult movie fans feel for it but i i had fun with it before and i had fun with it again it's uh, it's a unique experience i think we can uh, agree on that if nothing else did you snort speed while watching it <laughs> maybe that was my problem maybe if i had snorted some speed i would have enjoyed it so dave have you uh, had you ever seen this movie before so if you guys will indulge me a very quick uh, tangent um i i uh, i think i might have mentioned this to one of you before that that my mom always said this was one of my favorite movies as a kid. And, and I didn't remember it. I was like, what are you talking about? I don't remember this movie. So I was 10 minutes into this movie the other day and I paused it and I was like, mom, are you sure? I, I texted her. I was like, mom, are you sure I, that repo man is, was one of my favorite movies. And she said, I never said repo man. I said, Remo Williams, the adventure begins. Wow. So that, and, and I don't know what that is either. I've never seen either of these two movies. So uh, anyway, that's my tangent. So no, I've never seen it. All right. Hey, well, Josh. This, yes. When someone says indulge me a quick tangent, it's never a quick tangent. <laughs> that was, but it, that was, was a, quick, it was a good right? tangent. I think it was a solid tangent. Yeah, and, yeah and I we, agree. We're getting a real picture of Dave's parents throughout this. <laughs> right, season. right. As we as we've talked about many times, Dave's parents apparently uh, really appreciated showing him movies that were age inappropriate. <laughs> and so even even if Dave did not actually watch Repo Man as a child, I totally believe that his parents would have shown it to yes. him. Right, right. 
Yeah. I never and, uh, she said I never said repo man. I said Debbie does <laughs> Dallas. <laughs> that was a really good impression, yeah. by the way. There you go. <laughs> the impression of Dave's mom we can add to Jason's list of impressions. So uh, any other background on this one you want to share, Jason, or, or more details about Dave's mom? Well, Dave's mom is a lovely lady. She likes animals. Um, she has her routines, and that's cool. Uh, no, D- uh, Josh, uh, Entertainment Weekly, top 50 cult movies, number seven. How about that? Hooray. Let's see. I'm sure we're going to talk more about Alex Cox, the writer, director, and also a Fulbright scholarship recipient. So that's pretty cool. Uh, last thing to mention here before we get into the nuts and bolts is uh, Robbie Mueller, who we talked about earlier again with Paris, Texas, was the director of photography on this one. Yeah, quite a year for him, uh, as well as for Harry Dean Stanton. So uh, I did notice that as well. Wait, wait, I do have an update, Josh. Remo Williams stars Fred Ward as Remo Williams, an officially dead cop is trained to become an extraordinarily unique assassin in the service of the U.S. president. What year was that movie from? 1985. Oh. oh, man, we just missed the chance. So someday we can get to Remo Williams in uh, awesome movie year when we get to 1985. She says that I wanted to name my firstborn child Remo because of Remo Williams. That's how much I love the movie. I mean, just from that description, it sounds equally as inappropriate <laughs> for you to be watching at such a young age. So. All right, well, we'll come back in a moment then and not talk about Remo Williams, but instead talk about our general thoughts on Repo Man. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we're talking about our future cult classic pick, Repo Man. And this is a weird fucking movie. I think we can agree. Yeah, it's it's funny that it, future cult classic. It seems like it was built to be a cult classic right from the beginning, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think we you know we mentioned Alex Cox, who is is clearly a interesting fellow, and um, I think that was his sensibility. So um, certainly, this is a movie that I mean it had a cult following from the start. As we talked about, the way it was released was that it had to build a cult in order to get further released. And so from the very beginning, that was the kind of movie that it was. Well, and it almost had a uh, a cult following before that because he, you know, he's at UCLA. He's developing the idea. He's, he's British and he's developing this idea, Repo Man. And he wants to shoot it for like 70,000 bucks. And then if I'm not mistaken, Mike Nesmith from the, the Monkees gets a hold of it, right? And he gets uh, like a million dollar or a million five dollar budget for it. So it's already gone like totally off the rails before it even started, you know. And uh, we are in this very dystopian Southern California, Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is a perfect setting for this. Kind of like, Josh, when you um, your pick for 77, uh, The Late Show, it kind of shows like a very different uh distilled los angeles you know i thought that was really good it's sun-drenched it's dirty it's you know kind of sprawling but all there at the same time and we start on this like hardcore punk scene or you know very early on we're in the hardcore punk scene which was a huge you know at the time huge movement musically in uh in uh southern california and we meet otto and then he kind of gets tricked into becoming a repo man but then instead of uh pursuing a life of crime 
with his uh, friends who say, let's go do the crimes, you know, he decides to stick to becoming a repo man because he needs money and his parents gave away all the money they were going to give him to a televangelist. So that's um, and, you know, they got to track down a car that possibly has aliens in the back of it. Yeah, it's a weird mix of things, because like you said, we start with this punk rock scene. And obviously, Alex Cox was very into promoting L.A., Southern California, punk rock and hardcore and all these bands that are some of them are in the movie, the Circle Jerks who are in the movie or other bands that are on the soundtrack like Fear and Black Flag and Suicidal Tendencies. Um, You know, that's very underground and counterculture. And yet being a repo man is like, as as one of those uh, reviews alluded to, is being like the ultimate tool of capitalism. You know, it's taking people's possessions because they can't pay a bank. Mm-hmm. And so it's weird that that being a repo man is sort of reimagined in this movie as punk rock in a way, as being rebellious and outside the system, which I kind of liked because it worked in its weird way. And Emilio Estevez as Otto even though, you know, he's meant to be this punk rocker, yet he's got this like very military school looking buzz cut. And then he starts wearing suits. And yet somehow he still has that weird punk rock energy to him. Yeah, you could look, I I thought you were going to say, is he punk rock? And I was going to be like, I mean, he's no different than like Henry Rollins was, you know, with that haircut and the tight shirt in the 80s. You mentioned the bands, the plugs basically did the soundtrack for this. So I thought that first scene, like where they're just kind of all moshing uh, against each other outside of a club, like in a parking lot was really effective. And then the party that they go to where it's the punks, that was good. I liked um, not just Otto, but uh, his buddy is a Kevin. The, the one with the glasses who looks like Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, <laughs> who gets fired and it seems like Otto like hates this dude. But then they're like, turns out they're just bros. They're best friends. And like, he's totally, uh, he's totally like just given up on life. It seems like, you know, his, his goal is to go from get a job as a fry cook so he could maybe become a manager in two years or something. So. Right. And he's very resentful of Otto <laughs> for getting him fired from their job at the grocery store because he thought he could, uh, you know, move up there. And he does say, what does he say when they're looking at jobs? He's like, Fry Cook has movement or something yeah. like that. He's got this great line, like when he comes out and he sees something that uh, he's not expecting and just the way he delivers, he goes, what? <laughs> <laughs> really funny. So, um, yeah. but yeah, the Repo Man setup is, you know, Harry Dean Stanton basically scams him into helping him repossess a car and we're off and running. Right. And I just I just like that weird mix of things. And and he speaks to that. He kind of comes in and when he realizes what he's been tricked into, he's like, your guys are repo men. And he pours the beer on the floor and he's all like, I'm cool and punk rock. And, you know, I, I'm anti-establishment and I'm against you guys and I'd never become a repo man. And then the secretary is like, well, you already are. And here's some money. And then he's just like, OK, and I kinda <laughs> right. Like he just goes along. Right. With it. There's some weird characters in this uh, in the. Uh, Helping Hands Acceptance Corporation, Josh. Um, Besides Bud, who lives by this code, who's like a cowboy, right? There's like the other cowboy in there who's who doesn't live by any code it seems like and it's like if if someone's gonna try to shoot me i'm gonna try to shoot them i'll kill anybody you know and uh all the characters are named after beers as well did you notice that so. i didn't but uh i can totally see that and so the names cool. of beers are on the characters but not on the beers because yeah beers all other than beer. otto all the people at the repo and there's like that yeah. old cop 
type who is, you know, channeling Nick DeToro when he was two years old or something like that. But he's very funny too, demands respect for his tours of duty in Vietnam. And there's so many like weird juxtapositions. Like, you know, at one point he's like this tough dude's like, you will respect me and this and that. And then you see him like knitting. He's just <laughs> sitting there knitting for no reason. I thought that was, that was great. Cause it wasn't, they weren't pointing any attention to it. It was just like, he's in the foreground just knitting, waiting for his next assignment. Yeah, there's a lot of background things like that that are funny that they don't call attention to. I think he's knitting in multiple scenes too, which is even better, like when he's introduced. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's very amusingly weird, you know? And it feels like that kind of movie where anything that Alex Cox thought of, it's just like, I'm gonna throw that in. And, uh, and I like that about it, even though that also makes it like a complete mess and it's, totally disjointed at times and the plot it doesn't even exist half the time but i i like that and i like the again the, the coincidence of it that you know the the young woman who is part of the alien conspiracy is just walking on the street and otto drives up next to her and offers her a ride and that's how he gets caught up in this alien conspiracy but also the repo men are being offered a reward to find the car that has the aliens in it and it all just kind of like converges in this random way. Um, but that's that's quite entertaining. And also to the point where it's like, it's hard to see what side anyone is on because the, the young woman, I think Lila is her name that he picks up. She seems to be against the government and she wants to expose the aliens to the world. But then later she's working with the government agent who has the metal hand that has the Michael Jackson glove on it. So I, I don't know, man. I don't know. The, the metal hand is a great... Great thing, though, because it's so lame and like everyone's so impressed by it, <laughs> you know, and it's just a lame metal hand. Uh, hey, Josh, uh, within a couple of minutes of meeting one another, Otto and Layla have sex. You ever have sex with someone you just met, Josh? I can't say that I have, but uh, I did enjoy that scene because it's uh, played in like this Benny Hill fast motion <laughs> right. where they're having sex in the back of the car. People are like zipping around outside of it. I just thought that was hilarious. You're talking about how things like kind of come together and like, you know, we're going from uh, all these kind of stories that are separate, but they have like very loose links to each other. There is a great shot of the Rodriguez brothers um, when they go to the diner because they have now stolen the car with the aliens in the back and it's getting too hot to radioactivity. So they get out of the car to get some sodas and one of them's on the phone and Mueller pans over from the phone to the street where the punks who have just committed a robbery are running down and then they get in the car and now they're off and then we see the other car come up with the repo men, a lot going on. They fill the frame really nicely. Yeah, and those punks who who are Otto's kind of former friends who enjoy doing crimes, they're they're <laughs> kind of always like lagging behind or ahead. There's multiple scenes where Otto and Bud are walking into a convenience store that either has just been robbed or is about to be robbed or in the process of being robbed <laughs> by those punks who seem to spend their whole time just robbing various places. Although I did love, uh, like, later in the movie, after they've sort of decided they want to get away from all the craziness, and the, the third member of this crew has been vaporized by the aliens, and they're like, yeah, let's just go do those crimes, and the crime they're going to do is they're going to uh, get sushi and not pay. So yeah. it just seems like also, a very L.A. Also, that thing. third member is kicked out of the gang because he made, makes fun of one of the other members for not being able to open the trunk. <laughs> 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 
you're not it. But yeah, so there's a lot of weird, fun lines. Uh, I think the one that sums it up the best and is really, really good is uh, Bud at one point goes, ordinary fucking people. I hate them. Yes, the uh, contempt for ordinary people. But again, I love that like the counterculture is both punk rockers and repo men, that they're they're somehow equal in in being outside of the world of ordinary people. Yeah. Uh, so, Josh, you talked about it. The third act, uh, I I can't even get. I mean, it all falls apart. Yeah. I mean, not that it had all really been together to begin with, I think. Um, but right. I mean, the idea that this movie, that this story is going to build to some sort of coherent climax and we're going to learn about <laughs> who are the aliens and where did they come from and why are they radioactive and why are they in a car trunk and any of this stuff. Like I didn't expect to get answers. I mean, I was watching this, you know, I, I, I vaguely remembered from previous watches, but I didn't recall how the movie ends, but I wasn't thinking like, oh, the plot's going to come together here. So, uh, I mean, it gets more and more impressionistic as it goes on. And as, as one of the reviews alluded to the finale is the car with the aliens that's now Seems completely radioactive. Spoiler alert. Spoiler yeah. alert. Go ahead, Josh. I mean, if you can spoil, like, there's not a plot to spoil here, really. But, um, yeah, it just sort of ascends to the heavens. And and somehow, uh, Tracy Walter's character, uh, the, the weird guy who burns things, is able to get in the car when everyone else is, like, magically repelled from it. And he gets in, and Otto can also get in, and then they fly above Los Angeles, and that's the end. So... Nothing is answered. No questions have been addressed. But it does have a great moment where uh, Otto is being beckoned to come into the car and go on some sort of mystical journey. And Lila is trying to get him to stay. And she's like, what about our relationship? And he's like, fuck that. <laughs> and it's just hilarious because, first of all, they have no relationship. There is yeah. no relationship whatsoever. They had sex one time in a car. and But she has suddenly invested in this. And then no, just, no, no, like, no, no. They had sex one time in a car, and then he went to visit her at work, pulled his pants down, and said, the least you could do is give me a blowjob. That's the right. extent of their relationship. And she didn't. And at her work at the, what is it, the like United Fruitcake Organization, yeah. the U yeah. UFO, which appears to be some sort of museum, uh, I, don't, I don't even know. But yeah, that line is just hilarious. And I think that sums up the movie, where it's like, what about this conventional thing that isn't even really in the movie? Oh, Fuck that. Mm -hmm. So well, well, yeah. You, you bring up a good point because it is very nihilistic, and I think the soundtrack of that SoCal punk scene, which was just kind of ascending at the time, really, really hits it home. Like we've talked about it all season, but this is another great use of soundtrack. Yeah, it is. I mean, and it's very different from all those these big pop hits that we've talked about in a lot of the other movies, but it works perfectly in having the circle jerks there and having those songs. I mean, at one point that Black Flag TV party song turns into like the dialogue and, and Emilio Estevez is yelling that that the lyrics from that song about uh, shows on television. Right. And it just works as part of the weirdness of that character. Emilio Estevez is really interesting in, around this time in his career because he was doing all these kind of artsy projects and we don't really ever think back of him on that. But even The Breakfast Club, you know, that character had a lot of depth and... Um, it, it, it was an interesting time for him. And I think on these articles on the Brad Pack that kind of, you know, categorized him as that or whatever. If you go back and read him, he's talking about like all these kind of cool indie literary projects he wants to make and, you know, uh, ups and downs. But I like Emilio Estevez a lot. 
Yeah, I mean, but we definitely don't think of him as like an indie cult figure, as opposed to someone like Harry Dean Stanton, where you definitely think of that as like the focus of his career for the most part. And Emilio Estevez became this very mainstream uh, star. Not that, that he did a bad job at that, but, you know, this definitely wasn't, he didn't use Repo Man as sort of a jumping off point to do more weird indie films, you know? Well, like I said, yeah, I mean, Breakfast Club's not an indie film, but I'm saying this, like, this kind of moment in the mid 80s is where, like, he and the rest of these young, young actors were, like, vying for credibility, and they all kind of did some cool stuff, you know, all these stars that would go on to become huge stars over the next decade. Harry Dean Stanton, there's so many stories of just how insane he was on this set you know we're like you know there's a scene where um they have a showdown with the rival gang i think it is right and uh he wants you know he takes a baseball bat he wants to hit him with a baseball bat and like uh obviously the filmmakers were like well we should use a plastic bat because we don't want to hurt anyone and harry dean stanton yells harry dean stanton doesn't use a fucking plastic bat harry dean stanton uses a wooden bat you know (laughs) this craziness like that yeah well and it's perfect for the character who is obviously totally unhinged i mean every character in this movie is totally unhinged but uh him especially in his uh constant use of speed you know, it'll it'll put you on edge, I think, if you take a lot of speed. Just my thought on that. Dave, you take a lot of speed? I don't take a lot of speed, but I was going to say uh, the beginning of this movie, I thought it was a little bland, boring until they start doing speed. And then I was like, oh, this is great now. So, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I ever would have termed anything about this movie bland or boring. I mean, a lot of it is kind of chaotic and maybe it doesn't yeah. work, but uh, I never thought it was. Boring. I just wasn't on the wavelength yet. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. yeah. So, so Dave, I know you didn't actually see this as a child, but if you had seen it as a child, what would have been your favorite part? <laughs> I, I think the real question is, uh, how would I have turned out if I had seen this as a child? I... <laughs> <laughs> would you be uh, standing somewhere over a barrel burning Most things? Likely. Is that what you yeah. would? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Josh, in our 1996 uh, season, you know, we talk about Richard Stanley, who just kind of came back from, uh, and that year we talked about Dr. Moreau as a bomb, but... This past year, he had Colorado Space, which was really good. Did you feel that, like, I felt like Alex Cox is very, very influential on uh, on Richard Stanley. Yeah, I think Alex Cox, and especially this movie, is very influential on a lot of these outsider cult filmmakers. And, and he hasn't, and uh, we'll talk about this later, but he hasn't really had the chance to make that kind of comeback in the way that Richard Stanley has. His career has gone in much different direction than that, uh, let's say. But yeah, I mean, this movie, it's its a cult movie. And I think many, many uh, kind of weird genre filmmakers would cite this as an influence, um, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So uh, any other uh, aspects of this movie you want to highlight, Jason? Um, I really like there's a sequence where uh, we first meet the Rodriguez brothers and they're on like this kind of would you call it a canal or what would you call it? Like, Is that like a, a, a reservoir, maybe a ravine. It's a ravine. Maybe so, it's a ravine. Well, but, but a ravine is like a natural phenomenon. It's the kind of thing that you see. It's, don't they have a car chase there in Greece? I mean, it's the kind of thing that's in every L.A. movie. Mm-hmm. It's oh. uh, it's it's a little, uh, you know, the concrete uh, channel where there's a water runoff. Yeah. And it's, you know, kind of slanted diagonally down. I like that car chase a lot. I know you're saying it's a, a regular thing, but I thought it was a good way to kind of introduce the auto character to strange elements of his upcoming life. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I don't think that's a bad car chase. I mean, I think that particular uh, setting 
for car chases or something, a moment is, is something you see in a lot of LA movies, but that's part of the way that this movie captures LA. And this is an earlier version of, of that. It's probably in later movies. Um, and I might be wrong about Greece. I haven't seen that in a really long time, but uh, that is a fun scene. And I like that Otto, you know, Otto who has been skeptical about the idea of being a repo man and he's still kind of into his punk rock phase. And he's like, you didn't tell me there were gonna be car chases. Like now I'm all, I'm all on board. Yeah, villains and all man. this. Yeah, cops yeah. and robbers. Yeah, right. he goes all in at that point in time. Yeah, that is a fun scene. And the Rodriguez brothers as the rival repo men are uh, are amusing in their own little way. Um, uh, there's one very hilarious scene where I just want to point out, and then we can raid this thing, where Otto goes to repossess a car of an old black woman. <laughs> and he thinks he's going to repossess the car. And then all of her sons, uh, who seemingly all of her sons, are in a band, right? And they're five really really uh muscular you know 30 something year old black men enter and like Otto's, you know the mom's all like well he says he's gonna take the car and you know they just give him a look and guy i should be going now and then he still tries to take the car and and gets a deserved beating out of it he does because they've they've raised the car up uh so that he can't drive it away clearly they're anticipating this is about to happen and they know they're gonna catch him so uh yeah that's a fun a fun little scene and the way that he thinks he can put one over on her until her son. And uh, yeah, either all her sons or his son and his friends or whatever it is, they all return from their rehearsal or something like that. And there they right. are. Right. And that might've been the band that uh, the other repo man was telling them about when they played the, you like music? Yeah. I like music. <laughs> yeah. I was waiting for the tape to just be labeled music. <laughs> right, <laughs> the, right. The food is all just labeled generic uh, things like, like food and, and that scene, which we alluded to, where uh, Otto comes home and to his zonked out parents who are watching the televangelist, and he just grabs a can of food out of the refrigerator and starts eating it right out of the can. Um, and what food it is, we never learn. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, the mom tries to tell him, like, you know, heat it up, put it in a bowl, and it'll be better. It can't be any better than this, mom. <laughs> right. He's just loving the food. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, should we rate this out of five cans of food? Sure, Josh. Um, it gets two and a half cans of food for me, but like, go eat those two and a half cans of food, <laughs> guy. Um, I recommend the movie, but I'm but not as like, oh, it's great or this or that. It's exactly what we said. It's a very weird cult midnight movie that doesn't all come together, but like, watch it. Yeah, it's an experience. I, I give it a three out of five. I'm a little, maybe I was a little more into it, but I, I agree with what you're saying. It, as a movie, it has a lot of flaws. It really falls apart towards the end, but it's just, as an experience, it's worth having. So I recommend it. Dave, how many cans of food will you give I'm this? I'm going with three cans of food as well, Josh. Yeah, all right. And uh, childhood Dave, <laughs> who knows what he would have given it. He'd be eating those cans of food, right? Not, now. A, not enough nudity. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, we'll come back then and talk about the legacy of Repo Man. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we've been talking about our future cult classic pick, Repo Man. And of course, with these cult classics, the, the legacy of this starts out with it, it is in fact a cult classic and it continues to be. I think this is a movie that continues to be discovered by people who are into weird movies and is also, you know, it's it's gotten mainstream critical respect. This was released by Criterion at one point. 
So, I mean, you can't get more critical establishment than that. So uh, it's uh, it's beloved in its own weird way. I think it um, there's something to it. Uh, you know, you root for these movies that like the studio tries to bury and then they find their audience. And obviously, like you said, sometimes that's why they are able to develop certain amounts of an audience. But also, if the movie sucked, it wouldn't have any audience. Right. So you do root for these movies. And I think that is why. It is beloved. Um, and also because it's got a real attitude of nothing matters and fuck you. Right. It's very nihilistic <laughs> in an appealing way. And I think because it was successful, of it, you know, it built this cult following. You think that eventually they could get around to returning to it. And, and Alex Cox was trying to make a sequel called Waldo's Hawaiian Holiday, in which Otto has changed his name to Waldo for some reason. <laughs> um, you know why? Do you want to know uh, why? I, for copyright reasons, I'm not exactly because sure. Universal owns the names of the characters, so he just said, ah, "I'll just do it with different." <laughs> right, names. but that was never made. It was, however, adapted into a graphic novel in 2008, which I've never read, but I'm sure is very uh, weird. And and Alex Cox did eventually make uh, a sort of pseudo sequel, um, as you're saying. Universal owns the copyright, so he had to avoid using any of the actual characters. But he made a movie called Repo Chick in 2009 uh, that I've never seen. But uh, sadly, Alex Cox's career, not long after this, degenerated into these extremely low budget slapdash kind of affairs. And I think Repo Chick was shot entirely on, on green screens and, and, and may look uh, like we were talking about Albert Pune in our Streets of Fire episode. I have a feeling Repo Chick looks like a, a later Albert Pune movie. I kind of is... want to watch it. I, you know, from reading about Alex Cox, like I said, Fulbright scholarship, then he had this kind of boom period with this and then Sid and Nancy. And uh, he made that I, a movie I want to see, which has tons of, you know, punk rockers uh, straight to hell, which I never saw, but is, you know, kind of about that. They love these South American revolutionaries like Joe Strummer and him collaborated. And um, after that, uh, you know, he kind of went and did a, a whole series of movies in Mexico and was getting like financing from Japan or whatnot. And then eventually moved back to England uh, in Liverpool where he was doing these micro budget films like you're talking about. But he is a credited writer on Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas as well. Yeah, he's credited, although I don't think he actually wrote uh, any of that movie. Be, but he was developing it at one point and wrote a script. And I think WGA rules required him to be credited, even though Terry Gilliam and his collaborators completely rewrote that script. But I feel like that is sort of emblematic of his career where that could have been a big project for him that just never got off the ground. And he's just had this very spotty career where he's had to throw together financing from all these different random sources and just work on whatever projects come up. And I've actually seen weirdly a movie from 1996 that was uh, set and shot here in Las Vegas with Vincent D'Onofrio called The Winner uh, about this guy who has like supernatural luck at gambling, which is a weird movie, although not nearly as weird as Repo Man. But it definitely is in that continuum of like surreal, like what is even happening in this movie? But it's it's kind of I kind of enjoyed it in a way. It's it's maybe underrated. Uh, I watched it just because I was working on something about movies set here in Las Vegas. But it it's might be worth checking out. I want to see his take on the Revengers tragedy, which is like a classic, you know, story from history that I don't know because reading. Um, but his tale does feature a soundtrack from Chumbawamba. So I would like to see that, Josh. 
Yeah, sure. You could do a whole Alex Cox retrospective that would take you on quite a journey. Yeah, he's very interesting like that. And like I said, uh, well, I didn't say this, but he's a screenwriting teacher at University of Colorado Boulder now. And like, it'd be pretty fun to sit in on his class, I think. Yeah. And at least one of his later films was produced via a method that we know very well here in Las Vegas through our friend Francisco Menendez, where uh, he enlisted his students to work as the crew on uh, on his film in order to get them experience and uh, free labor for him. So he's at that uh, point of his career that he's getting students well, to free labor. He did raise a hundred thousand bucks off for that one via Kickstarter or something. So Right. And he's he's also at the phase where he needs to raise money on Kickstarter in order to make uh, a movie. But I feel like this like Repo Man has enough of a following that I could see him like Richard Stanley somehow getting back embraced right. by somebody with money who says, you know what? I love Repo Man and Alex Cox. I'm going to finally give you the resources to make a movie that you haven't had and like go for it. I think you're right, man. He's like one away, right? Like you feel like he's got one more in him, you know? Also, I wanted to point out theme song Iggy Pop. I did get to see it live at Punk Rock Bowling uh, when Iggy just basically just tore through a set of... Uh, it was it was one of the most amazing uh, performances I've ever seen. I've never really seen... I mean, I've seen a lot of music, but this dude comes out with as much momentum as anybody, and for him to carry that all the way through was pretty cool. So, and, you know, he... Uh, at the time in his career, mid 80s, not the best time for Iggy Pop. He really kind of looked at this as a boost because they gave him freedom to do what he wanted with the song. Yeah. And so he performed the Repo Man theme song when you saw him live? Yeah. So he does all, you know, he does a good amount of Stooges stuff and a good amount of solo stuff. And this was smack in the middle of the set. So that was pretty cool. Nice. Yeah. And this movie, as we said, is, is certainly promoted a lot of that punk rock, especially the Southern California bands that were all part of this soundtrack. And I feel like this is, along with some other things like maybe Penelope Spheris's uh, Suburbia, which is a movie that I thought of while watching this, is, is a very much a movie that brought that Southern California punk rock scene to audiences around the country who maybe weren't familiar with it or were familiar with those bands. Literally, it's funny because that movie is from the Eric Bogosian play, right? No, that's different. That Richard Linklater made a movie from the Eric Bogosian play. The Penelope Spheres movie is unrelated. It's a movie about young punk rockers in L.A. Okay, because I was thinking of the Eric Bogosian, Richard Linklater suburbia, not because of the music, but because of the attitude of the characters. So that's kind of a weird uh, double whammy of suburbias that we've just crossed. Mm. There you go. Yeah, certainly that disaffected attitude is something that uh, carries across in many movies about uh, young people on the margins. Jason, I have to give you a chance to talk about the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for doing that, Josh. Uh, there are just a few dream projects I have left now that they've already rebooted Saved by the Bell without me. But if I could somehow get in there and reboot the Mighty Ducks with Coach Gordon Bombay, obviously still helming the, the Ducks, then I think we're, we're going to win. It's going to be a, you know, a triple deke, a flying V, whatever you want to call it. I love the Mighty Ducks franchise and, uh, you know, Emilio is is synonymous with them. Yeah. And as we're saying, I think he's more synonymous with stuff like that. That's this kind of family friendly mainstream stuff than he is with these earlier, weirder indie movies. And that's the direction that he took his career in. And also they are rebooting the Mighty Ducks as a series on Disney Plus. So I think you already lost. Oh, man, there's not much like the characters here in Repo Man. 
there's nothing left that I should care about in this no, room. Once the Mighty Ducks reboot is off the table, you might as well just go get some drink and <laughs> drive a car with aliens in the trunk because yeah. what else is there? Well, I'd probably be drinking beer now that I know that. But, um, you know, I, it's funny because we saw Harry Dean Stanton do speed, but it wasn't from a vial that said speed on it. So, you know. No, no. And in fact, at one point, uh, but at one point, the the punk rockers, drop their drugs and it is a vial that just says like barrel nitrate on it or something like that so there you go even that gets its little generic name so uh anything else you want to mention on the legacy of this jason no i think we covered this one pretty well josh um and again this is a double cult classic season with this and streets of fire that is true lots of uh lots of cult potential in 1984 so that is Repo Man, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can follow us on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Uh, go for Jason.com. Someone should repossess that website. That's for sure. Uh, AwesomeMovieYear.com. Don't forget the disclaimer. We are anti-punching Rick Moranis in the face. Awesome movie here on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome movie pod on Twitter. You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, which actually has some new stuff that I think I can still claim as new for another episode or two, as well as Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. What do we have in our next episode, Jason? Josh, it's the audience choice winner from 1984. This was all about the young people dancing. And guess what we're going to do next time, Josh? We're going to cut it loose, foot loose. So kick off your Sunday shoes. It's foot loose. So tune in next time for Footloose and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.